This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of cervical facet dislocations and fractures from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Cervical facet dislocations and fractures represent a spectrum of osteoligamentous pathology that includes unilateral facet dislocation, bilateral facet dislocation, and facet fractures. With respect to unilateral facet dislocation, this is the most frequently missed cervical spine injury on plain x-rays. Unilateral facet dislocations lead to approximately 25% subluxation on x-ray, and they are associated with monoradiculopathy that improves with traction. Bilateral facet dislocations lead to approximately 50% subluxation on x-ray, and are often associated with significant spinal cord injury. Facet fractures more frequently involves a superior facet and may be unilateral or bilateral. With respect to the epidemiology, approximately 75% of all facet dislocations occur within the subaxial spine, that is C3 to C7. 17% of all injuries are fractures of C7 or dislocation at the C7 to T1 junction. This reinforces the need to obtain radiographic visualization of the cervicothoracic junction. With respect to the pathophysiology, the mechanism of these injuries usually involves a flexion and distraction force, plus or minus an element of rotation. With respect to the classification of cervical facet dislocations and fractures, the ones to know include the descriptive classification of the subaxial cervical spine and the Allen and Ferguson classification of subaxial cervical spine injuries. The descriptive classification of subaxial cervical spine injuries includes compression fractures, burst fractures, flexion distraction injuries, facet dislocations, whether unilateral or bilateral, and facet fractures. The descriptive classification is more commonly used in the clinical setting. The Allen and Ferguson classification of subaxial cervical spine injuries is typically used for research and not in the clinical setting. It's based solely on static radiographs and mechanisms of injury. The Allen and Ferguson classification includes six types, flexion compression, vertical compression, flexion distraction, extension compression, extension distraction, and lateral flexion. The important one to know is the flexion distraction type, which is divided into four stages. Stage 1 is facet subluxation, stage 2 is unilateral facet dislocation, stage 3 is bilateral facet dislocation with 50% displacement, and stage 4 is complete dislocation with 100% displacement. With respect to presentation, on physical exam, these patients should be evaluated for monoradiculopathy and spinal cord injury symptoms. With respect to monoradiculopathy, this is seen in patients with unilateral dislocations. With respect to a C5-C6 unilateral dislocation, this usually presents with a C6 radiculopathy that manifests as weakness to wrist extension and numbness and tingling in the thumb. A C6-C7 unilateral dislocation usually presents with a C7 radiculopathy, which manifests as weakness to the triceps and wrist flexion, as well as numbness in the index and middle finger. Spinal cord injury symptoms are seen with bilateral dislocations and symptoms worsen with increasing subluxation. With respect to imaging, typically you will get radiographs, a CT scan, and or an MRI scan. With respect to radiographs, the lateral shows subluxation of the vertebral bodies. Again, unilateral dislocations lead to approximately 25% subluxation. Bilateral facet dislocations lead to approximately 50% subluxation on x-ray and loss of disc height might indicate a retropulse disc in the canal. A CT scan is essential to demonstrate bony anatomy of the injury, malalignment or subtle subluxation of the facet, facet fracture, and or associated fractures of the pedicle or the lamina. 
Indications for MRI are controversial, but include acute facet dislocation in a patient with altered mental status, failed close reduction and before open reduction to look for disc herniation, and for any neurologic deterioration that is seen during close reduction. With respect to timing, timing of MRI depends on severity and progression of the neurologic injury. An MRI should always be performed prior to open reduction or surgical stabilization. Keep in mind that if a disc herniation is present with compression on the spinal cord, then you must go anterior to perform an anterior cervical discectomy. An MRI is valuable in demonstrating disc herniations, the extent of the posterior ligamentous injury, as well as spinal cord compression or myelomalacia. Treatment of cervical facet dislocations and fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management involves a cervical orthosis or external immobilization for 6 to 12 weeks. This is indicated for facet fractures without significant subluxation, dislocation, or kyphosis. Operative options include immediate close reduction, then MRI, then surgical stabilization, or immediate MRI, then open reduction and surgical stabilization. Immediate close reduction, then MRI, then surgical stabilization is indicated for bilateral facet dislocations with deficits in the awake and cooperative patient. Another indication is a unilateral facet dislocation with deficits in an awake and cooperative patient. With respect to the technique, never perform close reduction in a patient with mental status changes. With respect to surgical stabilization following successful close reduction, keep in mind that unilateral dislocations are more difficult to reduce but more stable after reduction. Bilateral dislocations are easier to reduce as the posterior longitudinal ligament is torn but is less stable following reduction. Make sure to always obtain an MRI prior to surgical stabilization. A posterior spinal fusion or an anterior cervical discectomy and fusion can be performed in the absence of significant disc herniation. An ACDF should be performed if there is significant disc herniation present. With respect to outcomes, keep in mind that 26% of patients will fail close reduction and require open reduction. Moving on to immediate MRI, then open reduction and surgical stabilization. This is indicated for facet dislocations, whether unilateral or bilateral, in a patient with mental status changes. And it's also indicated in patients who fail close reduction. With respect to the technique, again, always obtain the MRI prior to open reduction and stabilization. If there's a disc herniation with presence of spinal cord compression, then you must use an anterior approach and do a discectomy. Now let's go over some of these techniques in a bit more detail, specifically closed reduction, anterior open reduction and ACDF, posterior reduction and instrumented stabilization, and a combined anterior decompression and posterior reduction slash stabilization. With respect to closed reduction, the requirements include adequate anesthesia, sedation, supervision of respiratory function, and a serial cross-table lateral. With respect to the technique, gradually increase axial traction with the addition of weights. A component of cervical flexion can facilitate reduction. Perform serial neurologic exams and plane radiographs after addition of each weight. Make sure to abort the closed reduction if the neurologic exam worsens and obtain an immediate MRI. Moving on to an anterior open reduction and ACDF, as far as the indications, facet dislocations are reduced through closed methods with an MRI showing cervical disc herniation with significant compression on the spinal cord. This option is also indicated for unilateral facet dislocations that fail close reduction with a disc herniation with significant compression on the spinal cord. Anterior open reduction techniques can be used to reduce a unilateral facet dislocation. The reduction technique involves distracting the vertebral bodies with Casper pins and then rotating the proximal pin towards the side of the dislocation. Keep in mind that this is not effective for reducing bilateral facet dislocations. 
Moving on to post-year reductions and instrumented stabilizations, this is indicated when you are unable to reduce by a closed or an anterior approach. It's also indicated when there is no anterior compression of the spinal cord, that is with no disc herniation. With respect to the technique, this option is performed with lateral mass screws, and you usually have to fuse two levels due to inadequate lateral mass purchase at the level of dislocation. Finally, with respect to a combined anterior decompression and posterior reduction slash stabilization, this is indicated when a disc herniation is present that requires decompression in a patient that cannot be reduced through closed or an open anterior technique. With respect to the technique, you will go anterior first, perform the discectomy, position the plate, but only fix the plate to the superior vertebral body. This way the plate will prevent graft kickout but still allows rotation during the posterior reduction. This technique eliminates the need for a second anterior procedure. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, Treatment consisting of halo vest immobilization is most likely to fail with which of the following cervical injuries? And the choices are 1. C1 lateral mass fracture, 2. C2 pars fracture, 3. C4 burst fracture, 4. C5 burst fracture, and 5. C6 C7 facet fracture dislocation. The correct answer to this question is 5. C6 C7 facet fracture dislocation. So facet joint fracture or dislocation is associated with an increased risk of loss of alignment with halo vest immobilization. The recently published study by Van Mittendorp and Associates confirms the findings of prior studies that facet fracture subluxations or dislocations are difficult to immobilize with a halo vest due to a limited ability to maintain reduction and alignment. C2 pars fractures, burst fractures, and C1 lateral mass fractures can be managed with halo vest immobilization. Moving on to the next question. Cervical facet dislocations are characteristically caused by which of the following mechanisms of injury? And the choices are 1. Flexion compression, 2. Vertical compression, 3. Flexion distraction, 4. Extension compression, and 5. Extension distraction. The correct answer to this question is 3. Flexion distraction. So the Allen and Ferguson classification of cervical spine injuries breaks injuries of the subaxial spine into 6 phylogenic groups based on mechanism of injury. These include 1. Flexion compression, 2. Vertical compression, 3. Flexion distraction, 4. Extension compression, 5. Extension distraction, and 6. Lateral flexion. So facet dislocation is caused by flexion distraction forces. Therefore, in a facet dislocation, the posterior structures like the interspinous ligament, facet capsule, ligamentum flavum, or posterior annulus are likely disrupted, whereas the anterior structures like the anterior longitudinal ligament are usually preserved. Sutherland et al. showed in a biomechanical bovine model and Co. et al. in a cadaveric model that anterior plating was inferior to posterior techniques, like the Rogers wiring method, Bowman's triple wire technique, sublaminar wiring, and posterior hook plate stabilization for stabilization of flexion distraction injuries of the cervical spine. And moving on to the final question. A 20-year-old man involved in a motor vehicle accident is brought to the emergency department with a C6-C7 unilateral facet dislocation. His neurologic examination reveals a focal left-sided C7 nerve root palsy. He is awake and cooperative with questioning and has no other obvious traumatic injuries. What is the most appropriate treatment at this time? And the choices are 1. Further imaging studies, including MRI. 2. An awake close reduction with Gardner-Wells traction with neurologic examination. 3. Immobilization in a halo skeletal fixation for definitive treatment. 
four, close reduction under general anesthesia, and five, immediate open reduction and internal fixation in the surgical suite. The correct answer to this question is two, an awake close reduction with Gardner-Wells traction with neurologic examination. So when the patient who is neurologically intact or has an incomplete injury from a cervical facet dislocation, a close reduction with weighted tongue traction is appropriate when the patient is awake, alert, and cooperative. Although there is a risk that a cervical facet dislocation could occur with an underlying cervical disc herniation, Vaccaro and associates have shown that close reduction can be safely carried out in the awake responsive patient. Close reduction can be performed in the emergency department with traction with skull tongs or a halo ring. A slow stepwise application of weight is added until a reduction is achieved. Any worsening of the neurologic status of the patient requires immediate termination of the closed reduction and further diagnostic imaging before proceeding with further treatment. That's all for this review about cervical facet dislocations and fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.